And do you remember what the purpose of the book of John was? We uh, mentioned it last week. And it comes from John 20, verse 31. It actually tells us what the purpose of the book is. Yeah, Cheryl. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Cheryl. She, kn she knew that one. <laughs> Very good. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, I have life in his name. That's what the book of John is all about. And uh, really, as we read the book of John, what we are looking at is the first 18 verses are simply the prologue. And uh, you might consider them, we mentioned this last week as well, as the narrator preparing us to understand the story, uh, giving us uh, background information so that when the story of Jesus begins in verse 19, then we are prepared and ready. It's kind of like I said last week, kind of like when you, when you watch a play. You know, before the, the opening scene, when the curtain is lifted, Sometimes a narrator will tell you the, the background information so that you're going to understand the story. And it's kind of like what this prologue is all about. He's preparing us for the story to begin. And really, if we want to understand what the prologue is all about, then not surprising, it's going to be about Jesus, right? The prologue is preparing us to understand Jesus. Why? Why? So that you might believe and be saved. I said last week that pretty much every main subject is brought up in the introduction. And the subjects are brought up in key words that John loves to use. He loves to use really simple words such as light and life, that have deep meanings, right? Some people say that really John is the easiest book if you're going to um, translate the Greek because it's really simple. But really, it, it, it appears like it's a mile wide, right, and an inch deep. But really, it's a mile deep. <laughs> and he uses words sometimes to mean multiple different meanings, and so it is rich and deep in meaning, deceptively rich and deep in meaning. But the first 18 verses is kind of like giving us the general answer key to interpreting these words. Kind of like having the, the clue or the answer key to unlocking the secrets of the book. It's going to help us make sense for the rest of the book. So I just want to remind us of how important this prologue is. And that we're kind of going slowly but I want us to get what we're being told here so that we understand the story when it begins. And as I said, most foundational for believing in Jesus is understanding who he is. He is key to understand the book of John. If you don't get Jesus, you don't get anything. And so it's not surprising that the first five verses we looked at last week are dedicated to telling you who Jesus is. And so when he comes on the scene, we will begin by understanding already what we need to understand about who he is when he does come on the scene. 
And to know who Jesus is, his identity, you must go all the way back. Before the incarnation, way back, right? Even before the creation of the world. Remember we said that he was. When the world was created, he was. Then we said, if we're to understand Jesus, last week we said we must understand that he was already existing before the creation of the world and that he is God. Incredible. Incredible thoughts. We also said that he is the creator of everything. Everything that exists, which means that he stands outside of creation. There's God and there's creation, right? More like God and creation, (laughs) right? And God stands outside and above his creation, right? We also said that he is the light. He is the truth. And he is the life, (laughs) right? All life comes from Jesus, And that's why it is such a serious and significant thing when we wanted to be independent of God, when he gave us what we wanted, we became separated from life. So he exposes the darkness with a light of truth. And he gives us life. And so what we see today is that God sent a witness we will see that God has not only revealed to us who he was, right, in the first five verses, but he also tells us, I did more than that. I'm doing more than that. I am also sending a witness who is going to point out who I am, who's going to bear witness to who I am, so that you might believe. We see that in verses 6 through 9. And God is pulling out all the stops here. God is giving us so much more than we deserve. He is even bearing witness to who he is by sending John the Baptist. Now the problem is, as we will see, that when the light comes to us and shines in the darkness and God gives us the witness to point him out, yet people still do not recognize him and do not believe. And that's verses 10 through 11. Even those who had every single reason to believe, his own people, still would not believe in him. They wouldn't even recognize him. And this is an indictment against the whole human race, isn't it? Of how blind we are. When our creator comes, we do not recognize him. And so we're going to be left with a question. How then are we going to believe and be saved? And verses 13 is going to answer that question. Is there any hope for us today? So first we see that God sent a man named John to bear witness of the light so that when he came, you might believe in him and be saved, right? God sent John to bear witness to the light so that when the light comes, you might believe and be saved. In verse 6 through 9. And we're introduced to a man named John. And I want to clarify something. It might be obvious to most of us, but maybe someone is a little confused about this. His name is John. And the author of the book is John. And I want to make it very clear that this is not the same John who is the author of the book that we're being introduced here. (laughs) Right? I think it's important that we're clear on that. Whenever John, the writer of the gospel, um, mentions the name John, he is never referring to himself. Because he doesn't refer to himself by name in the gospel. And so every time we hear the name John, it is always referring to John the the Baptist. Now, we might wonder what John is doing in a prologue about Jesus. (laughs) What is John the Baptist doing in a prologue about Jesus? I thought this was all about Jesus. 
And we are told the answer is that the very significance of John is that he was sent to bear witness of Jesus. Read this in verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. John was nothing more or nothing less than a witness. And he was a witness of Jesus. And so we need to ask, what does it mean to say that John came to bear witness of Jesus? And I spent a lot more time than I needed to trying to study what it meant that John was to be a witness. <laughs> I really didn't need to study as much as I did. Because it's absolutely clear. John was simply to tell everyone that the Messiah had come. That's what he was doing. The one identified in verses 1 through 5 had come. The eternal God. The one who is God. The creator. The one who gives life. The one who is the light. John was bearing witness that this is the very one who had come. The Messiah had arrived, and John was bearing witness to that fact. He was making it known. Now, it's kind of like a court of law where John takes the witness stand, and you are the jury. In some ways, it's kind of like that, right? John takes the witness stand. He bears witness that this is the Messiah, this is Jesus. This is the one prophesied about. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who's going to save us. This is God who has come to save us from our sins. And we are the jury. But in some ways, it's not true that we are the jury, <laughs> right? Every illustration like that needs an explanation because none of them fits perfectly with reality. The difference is that we are really on trial and if we get it wrong, we are guilty. <laughs> we are the ones who are on trial. So as he bore witness to that light, he had one specific goal. And what was that goal? That all might believe. And what's really important to understand here is that the goal that all might believe is inseparable from bearing witness to Jesus. You see, when you bear witness to Jesus, it demands a response. It demands a response, either belief or unbelief, either repentance and faith or rebellion and rejection. There is automatically a response that's required with a message. Of who Jesus is. Remember Acts 2 verse 37? Peter didn't need to say what they needed to do. <laughs> the people said, what must we do to be saved? Right? They knew there was a response. And yes, we should call people to repentance and faith. But in one sense, it is naturally just a part of the message. That we must believe or we must reject it. One or the other. But there's no in between. You can see an example of John the Baptist bearing witness to Jesus in their response in chapter 1, verse 35 to 37. Listen to how John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus. 
And listen to the response. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. That's all he said. He didn't say, Repent and believe. He just said, Behold the Lamb of God. And listen to the response. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And they had obviously been prepared by John the Baptist to understand what that meant. But they responded and they followed him. That's what faith looks like. That's repentance and faith. And they followed Jesus. Jesus would confirm John the Baptist was a good and faithful witness in chapter 5, verse 35. He said that John the Baptist was a burning and shining lamp. In other words, a.k.a., (laughs) that means he was a faithful witness. He was a burning and shining lamp. So we might ask, what makes him such a good witness? What makes anybody such a good witness? Well, the narrator hints at what made John such a good witness in verse 9. He says, He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. What made John such a good witness is not only that he called attention to the light. His whole life was about the light, bearing witness to Jesus. But what made him such a good witness was that he did not call attention to himself. Right? There are two aspects to being a good witness that are absolutely essential. Right? We must, first of all, not call attention to ourselves. We are not to be selfish and prideful. We're to be humble, right? That's what it means to not call attention to yourself. And we are to boast and exalt and magnify Jesus Christ, right? And that's exactly what John did. And that's what made him such a good witness, that he bore witness to the object. That's what makes you faithful as a witness. In one sense, John represents every witness that's ever come before him. The entire Old Testament witness of Jesus is all pointing towards him. All the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. You need him, right? We're not okay without him. And he is the answer. He is coming. He's going to deliver us. All the Old Testament is pointing to him. And John was just saying, he has arrived. He is here. So in a sense, he embodied the whole witness of the Old Testament when he came. He is their voice. And you could say that John continues to bear witness of Jesus today. He continues to speak through these Gospels. Isn't it amazing what a voice, what a difference a voice can make, right? When it's bearing witness to the right uh, person. Like Abel, he still speaks even though he is dead. According to Hebrews 11, verse 4. It is actually a testimony against the human race that the light meaning the creator of everything, needs a witness. Ever thought about that? A.W. Pink explains it this way. He says, When the sun is shining in all its beauty, who are the ones unconscious of the fact? Who needs to be told it is shining? (laughs) The blind. How tragic. Then we read that God sent John to bear witness of the light. How pathetic that there should be any need for this. How solemn the statement that men have to be told, the light is now in their midst. What a revelation of man's fallen condition. 
So my question for you is, are you called to be a witness of Jesus? Well, in some ways, John was unique, wasn't he? He was unique in his timing, for sure. But in many ways, we have the same exact calling that John did. We are to follow in his footsteps. We are to continue to do what he was doing. Every believer has a new mission and a new purpose for their lives. They're to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And this is not something we need to be compelled to do. This is the joy of our hearts. This is what we love to do. This is our passion. There is nothing we would rather do than bear witness to Jesus. And we do so with the goal and the passion that people might believe and be saved. And in so doing that God would get the glory. And that his name would be properly exalted through the worship that arises from faith. This means that like John the Baptist, your significance is wrapped up, wrapped up in your faithfulness to bearing witness to Jesus so that others might believe. This is your main calling in life, believers. What else would you rather be doing? What else is more significant than this? Is there anything more loving? Is there anything that shows that you care about others more than witnessing of God? Now, there are many pitfalls, aren't there? There are many pitfalls that can easily keep us from being faithful in our witness of Jesus. But especially, there's a pitfall in being self-centered and being prideful. Isn't it so easy for us to fall in that pit with our lives? For instance, we might be hurt by the church and respond, I am going to close myself off from the church. I am going to close myself off from people, <laughs> right? And there are people who are genuinely hurt by the church, right? I'm not denying that. But it is a sin to close us off from people because we've been hurt, right? That is the wrong response. That is selfishness, isn't it? Or, and it ruins our witness, or my church is doing so well, everyone needs to know about my church, <laughs> Isn't that just the opposite error? Is <laughs> thinking that I want everyone to know about my church. Or I am doing so well, everyone needs to know how I'm doing things. My three steps to recovery, my this or that, right? That ruins our witness when it becomes about us and how we are fixing things. You know, it's really easy when a church starts booming, right? For all of a sudden, things to be going really well, and then all of a sudden, everyone starts focusing on the church and wondering, what are they doing that's so good, right? And that can so easily ruin a church. When we lose sight of Jesus and stop proclaiming Christ, right, We've, everything is ruined when we do so. Or we become focused on witnessing to some other agenda in our lives, I'm just picking on this because it's right now a big reality. Masks or no masks, vaccine or no vaccine, you know, we become focused on other things and we lose sight of Christ. And I'm not, pick, I'm not just picking on this church here. I'm talking about the tendency of all of us. We have a tendency towards selfishness and our American culture encourages it. We have incorporated our selfishness into our American idealism, 
into our American way of thinking, and it kills everything about our witness to the world when we do so. And we think it's Christianity. <laughs> we need to beware of what we are witnessing about. What are we witnessing about with our lives? What is our main message that our lives are giving? Another hindrance to our witness is being paralyzed by fear. The fear of man is a real hindrance to our witness, isn't it? I fear man. <laughs> I struggle with the fear of man. Right? I think we all do. But we have to remember that all we're doing is testifying to Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And that's it. And calling people to believe. Let's be careful not to make it more complicated than it is. It's not really about you and it's not really about me, is it? We want to get out of the way and we want to magnify Christ. If you fumble over your words because you just didn't say it the way you meant to, remember it's about Jesus. And keep growing, keep learning, keep understanding better. But remember, it's about Jesus. So are you a faithful witness? A faithful witness is someone who is growing to know Jesus better and better? How can you speak of Jesus if you don't know him? A faithful witness is someone who is delighting in Jesus more and more? Why would you ever tell others about Jesus if you're not delighting in him? And he's of infinite delight. The more you delight in him, the more you will tell others about him. A faithful witness is someone who loves and cares for others more and more. Are you learning to love others more? Do you understand what people need is the gospel? If you do so, you will be speaking the gospel and telling them about Jesus. A faithful witness looks like a person who practices repentance. You know, we don't realize that selfishness is a battle. And if we are to win the battle against selfishness, we need to be repentant people day in and day out. It is a practice that should be a part of our lives. That's the only way we're going to win the battle against selfishness, is if we learn to repent daily. A faithful witness looks like someone who is thankful for God's grace. If you are thankful to God, especially in the trials, people are going to wonder, what is different about you? What is the hope that you have that makes you so different? And then we're going to be able to give the gospel. And the gospel gives us every reason to be thankful during every circumstance. And it looks so weird to the world. And that is really what the world realizes they need when we are thankful when we're going through trials. And people want to know, what are you taking? <laughs> what are you on? <laughs> What's the difference between you? We can tell them. So what was the response to the light, the witness of Jesus? You would think that in the light of who he is, and especially after the witness that came before him, that when he appeared, everyone would recognize and believe him. But that wasn't the case at all, was it? He was rather unrecognized and unreceived. We see that in verses 10 through 11. And those verses, by the way, are supposed to be shocking. Those verses are to shock us into realizing the significance of what happened when we did not receive the light when he came. And the language there is filled with shocking language, right? It says, we are told that everyone, that the very one, sorry, who created the world came to his creatures. The one who created the world came to his creation. 
And what was the response? We did not recognize him. We didn't recognize our creator. That's shocking. But it gets worse. He came particularly to his own special people, his own possession. That's what that word means, his own property that he especially loved and cared for. He treated as his own. And what was the response? They did not receive him. His own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. That is even more shocking. So what does this tell us about ourselves? This is not an indictment against the Jewish people. This is an indictment on all of us. The Jewish people are our mirrors that reflects our own hearts. Their response to Jesus reflects our response to Jesus in our hearts and the reality of who we are. And they were given everything. They were loved by God. They were cared for by God. They were displayed powerful miracles and powerful deliverance. They could not have been more cared for. And yet they did not recognize him when he came. They were, tr- they were created by God and then created by God as a people. And they did not recognize him. How shocking is our hearts? How shocking is our blindness? Well, we're given a great promise. At the same time, there is this incredible promise God holds out to all who do believe in him. He says that you have the right to become sons of God in verse 12. Well, what makes a promise great? Well, if someone made a promise, it would only be as great as you had a need for what he was telling you and promising to give to you, right? Like if someone, had, if someone was offering you a million dollars, if you were a millionaire, it wouldn't be a big deal, would it? It would be kind of nice, but not a big deal. Uh, if you were a beggar and had nothing and someone offered you a million dollars, it would be everything to you, wouldn't it? So if you're to understand the greatness of what God is promising, you need to first understand what your problem is so that you can understand what you need. You know, we could go through what people say our greatest needs are. They say hunger is our greatest need, right? Other people say that our greatest need is a failure to love, right? The Beatles said that, all you need is love, right? But God's word tells us the greatest problem is that we are sons of the devil, And that's a greater problem, isn't it? By nature, none of us are sons of God. We are all sons of the devil. And it was so bad that even the most religious people of the day were called by Jesus sons of the devil in John 8, verse 44. Imagine someone saying that today. Calling the most religious people sons of the devil. There is no one who is born neutral, We're partly sons of God. We're either sons of the devil or sons of God, one or the other. And this means your greatest need is to be sons of God. There is no greater need. So how does one become a son of God? It says it right here. It says you have the right to become a a child of God. Only those who receive him and believe in his name. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Is this an incredible promise? Have you ever heard of such a great promise? Is it possible to be given a promise that even compares to this one? And the answer is no, there is none greater than this. What does it mean to receive him and to believe in his name? Well, 
Isn't it interesting how we are helped here to understand what it means to receive? It says, those who receive him to those who believe in his name. And they are both similar words here. They both mean similar things here. And they help us understand what the other one means. To believe in his name means to receive him as he has revealed himself to be. To receive him as his claims have been made to be true. His name refers to all that he is, his totality of his being. That he is God, that he is the creator, that he gives life. That he is also the prophet, which means his words are from God. That he is also the priest, which means his sacrifices, or his sacrifice, I should say, for our sins are sufficient. It means he is also our king. This means that we must bend our knees to him as Lord of our lives. And this will look like repentance from our sin and believing and following Christ. Sometimes the best way to understand something is to understand what it doesn't mean. And it doesn't mean merely intellectual agreement with the facts about Jesus. It doesn't mean you accept that he existed. None of these things constitute saving faith. And so I think this illustration or the story I heard helps to understand what saving faith looks like. A young girl was being shown this beautiful palace. And the man who was showing this girl the structure asked her, would you want to live here? So the girl thought about it for a moment and said, and said this, yes, but only if my mommy and daddy could live there with me. Isn't this what saving faith says about Jesus? Jesus is greater than castles and money and fame and pleasure. Jesus is more important to me than anything else. Yes, I will live there if Jesus is with me. Faith says, if I have nothing but Jesus, then I'm okay. So faith doesn't merely acknowledge Jesus as a valuable treasure. It sees him as the greatest of all valuable treasures. And it's ever increasingly glorious, valuable treasure every day as we see him as he truly is in all of his glory. So what is the great result of receiving and believing? Jesus says you have the right to become children of God. Now when it says you have the right to become children of God, what that means is you have, based on his authority, the right to become children of God. I have no right to call myself the President of the United States, right? You have no right to call yourself the President or a King, right? We have no right to do such a thing. And if I claim that, you would say, based on what authority do you have the right to say that? And you would be right to ask that question. But God says to all who believe in his name, God gives them the right to be children of God. Based on his authority. And there is no greater authority than his. I want to make a quick clarification here. Being a child of God is different from what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. It is not the same thing, and it might be obvious to you, but I just want to make that clear. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. He is unique as the Son of God. We 
are adopted into his family. And we do need to hold that distinction. There is a difference there, a big difference. But then what does it mean for you to be a son of God? It means you are now a member of God's family. And included in that is all the privileges of what it means to be called by God's family. You have the privileges of family membership, all the rights thereof, the name of the Father, and the blessings that belong to him are now yours. It means you receive the full fatherly love that God has for his children. All of his care and all of his fatherly discipline. Isn't that great? It means you have unlimited access to God in prayer. It means just as you bore the resemblance of Satan who was your father, now you begin to bear the resemblance of God as your father. You have new desires. You have new passions. You have a new direction to live for God's glory. It means you have a share in God's inheritance that belongs to his children. You become heirs of eternal glory. There's no greater privilege than being a child of God. There's no position. You know, so many people spend their whole lives pursuing a position in life, working very hard. But what does it mean? What does it mean? There's no greater position you could possibly have than being a child of God. In light of the unbelieving response to Jesus, when he came, you might ask, how can anyone believe, become his child? And the answer is, you must be born again. That's what it says in verse 13. Who are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. There are many reasons people say they have the right to become children of God. They say, I was born in the bloodline. <laughs> you know, a heritage. I had believing parents, right? But that doesn't make you a child of God. Others will claim their goodwill, you know, their sincerity. They signed a card. They raised their hands. They came forward. They had emotional fervor, right? But that doesn't make anyone a child of God. Still others will claim that they worked hard. Their efforts gives them a right to become a child of God. Going to church, doing good works better than someone else or self-righteousness, that doesn't make anyone a child of God. God is the final authority that gives someone the right to be a child of God. And it says to those who believe in him, to, to, to those who receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. But this brings up a dilemma. How does anyone believe? We know that when the light came, people remained in darkness. They did not look to him. They did not receive him. And this means you must go further back if you're to find out how someone becomes a child of God. If you're to believe, you must be born again through a supernatural work of God. This is what but God, but of God means here. <laughs> he is the giver of life. He is the one who regenerates. And to understand this, you can compare your physical birth to spiritual birth, right? What did you have to do with becoming a child of your family? Did you put yourself into your family? The answer is no. God is the one who supernaturally brings forth the birth, the spiritual birth of one of his children. God took the initiative. He is the one who initiates salvation. We believe and become his children because he first creates new life in us. Behind and supporting every decision is God's first choosing you. Whenever we see people outside of the prologue believing in God, it's because God gave them life. Remember, the prologue is setting the stage for the rest of the book. And so he doesn't have to explain all this all the time. But we know from the prologue that that's the case. Ephesians 1 verse 4 through 5 makes a similar point. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. 
In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good purpose of his will. And what does a baby do when they're born? We hear them cry out, you know, when when a baby is born, they repent and they believe. A spiritual baby, right? That's what they do. That's how we, the indication that there is life here is through their response. Because God has given them birth. Some people wrongly accuse Christians of speaking a different language, unintelligible language, because they tell people they must be born again, right? They call it Christianese. But that is a ridiculous charge when it is the language that the Bible uses all over the place. (laughs) The new birth is a great way of expressing what people need to become because it tells people that there's a radical change that needs to take place and that it must come from outside of you. He gets the credit, and we get to depend on God. So that's a good thing to say. Someone once asked George Whitefield, George Whitfield, sorry, who's a, a faithful and, fa- and famous evangelist during the 1700s, why he kept telling people they must be born again. And his response was, because you must be born again. <laughs> Pretty simple. James 1 verse 18 gives us the means through which God gives birth. We read, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Now, if we understood this, the church would be radically different the way we do things. The church would understand what our mission is and how to accomplish our mission and how to do things. We would trust God that he works to bring life through the preaching and teaching and speaking of his word. We would not trust in our ability to produce emotional highs, We would not try to manipulate for the sake of decisions. We would trust his word to be a sufficient tool to bring salvation. We would teach and preach the word of God, knowing that God works through his word to transform hearts and make children of God. It's a miracle of God. We are to be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. Doesn't that help us to understand what the church is about? (laughs) Doesn't that make it really simple to understand what we are to do? Are you a child of God or a child of the devil? You are one or the other. Only those who believe are given the right to become children of God. And this believing is not because you are better than others, but because God is gracious and merciful. It is important that we don't presume that we have the next moment to believe. Right? I was thinking about those in Florida a couple months ago when that building collapsed. Most of them were sleeping at night in their beds the very moment when that building collapsed. They went to bed, and they didn't wake up. And I don't say that to scare anyone. I say that to let the truth bear weight on your heart in your life, that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Be delivered from the wrath of God. Repent and believe in the good news. And all who believe will become children of God. Or are children of God. If you're a child of God, then you have a great purpose in life to bear witness of Jesus. There's no higher calling or more loving thing than for you to bear witness of Jesus. Have you ever thought about how powerful a voice can be that speaks the truth? God is using his little witnesses like you and me to accomplish his mighty saving plan. This is God's power on displayed. Let me leave you with this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the one thing in life that we should not be ashamed of. Let's pray.
Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for your great salvation. We thank you for a God who is mighty and powerful to work miracles. God, I ask you to work miracles right here and right now, Lord. May you confront us with the reality of our need to be born again. May you confront us with the reality that you are the only one who can change us, who can save us. Lord, I pray that you bring birth into this congregation today. Lord, I pray that you'd make us faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. May we be people who proclaim the one true God and the only one who can save us from our sins. And we thank you for your great message to us. We thank you that you have given us our Savior, who is Christ Jesus the Lord. And there is no greater message than that. May we speak and proclaim your name wherever we go this week. Um, and may you be lifted up and exalted. And may you be pleased to save. In Jesus' name, amen.